a Podcast One production. Dave Hughes is one of the biggest names in Australian comedy. To be with Hughesy is to train your gaze to see the wonderful, to attend to and meditate on what you love, even in the midst of difficult realities. Seeing the world through his eyes, we understand that there is no such thing as yesterday, only here and now. Husey calls joy the happiness that doesn't depend on what happens. It's a choice you make regardless of what's going on around you. In this intimate conversation, we talk about his struggles with alcohol, how the words I love you are so hard to say, and why failure is not what it seems. In your failure is the seeds of your success. Because when you can see your failure as funny, well, then you can't be defeated. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Dave Hughes is a comedian, radio and television presenter. He is Husey in the Husey and Ed duo, one of Australia's most loved radio shows. In this episode, you will learn how to find true happiness from deep within. Dave, you grew up in Warrnambool in a commission house in Victoria, and you were one of four. You have twin sisters and an older brother. How were the childhood years for you? Life was... uh uh, fun growing up, you know, although my, my, you know, there was a bit of drinking in the house, if I'm going to be honest. So that was, a, could be a bit stressful. Dad was a shift worker who drank too much, I'm going to say. So what did, did he life. do? Uh, he worked at Nestle's factory. So, um, they used to make dry, well, they used to uh, make dried milk, I think, and, uh, coffee. And, uh, yeah, so he was a painter, like a house painter, uh, when he was a young man. And then he, uh, apparently was terrible at business. He was, uh, too soft to actually, uh, try to get money off people's houses he painted. So he ended up painting houses and then, uh, not hassle them to pay him. So <laughs> he wasn't a good businessman. So he ended up uh, getting a job in a, in Nestle's factory and worked shift work for many years. Which is very stressful for people. Um, yeah, so there's yeah, shift workers are uh, heroes, really, and it's uh, they never uh, have a normal life if they're working around the clock. So he was one of those guys, and uh, yeah, that made family life a bit stressful at and, times. And your mum, she's a she was a midwife. Yeah, she worked as a nurse for many years. So yeah, so they'd be uh, juggling the four kids, and uh, you know, doing both working, and uh, yeah, so. I mean that was that was fine. It was it was fine. How was it? Because obviously that is two full on jobs. It's amazing jobs, but it is full on. And like you said, you know, working shift work is. I mean, I, you've done breakfast radio. I've done breakfast radio, and that's not actually shift work, and that is full on. You mentioned he he drank heavily, and how how was that? I mean, for the four kids, and especially when you were young. Oh, it's just what you, it's all we knew. I mean, yeah, I mean, he was, yeah, dad, I mean, oh, mum will be annoyed about me talking about this, but, um, you know, it was just, I think there was, maybe there was more drinking back then. I don't know, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, look, it's probably part of the reason that I don't drink is that, yeah, it just, it can be stressful for the family, basically. So, um, 
Yeah, big drinkers uh, are not the most, generally not the most uh, stable uh, characters, you know, so, and uh, to go from highs to lows, and uh, yeah, that can be uh, stressful on, 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 on children, basically, so, yeah, but you know, it's what we knew, and um, you know, it's the way it was. Did you have a good relationship with your parents growing up? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, it was with my mum. I did absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and my dad was. There was fractious. I think is a word that can be used as we got into our, as I became a teenager. So, um, you know, I think that happens a lot with uh, dads and their sons that they uh, see the world differently. And I remember, I, I was, well, I would have been a pain in the ass as well. I mean, I remember when I read. I remember once I read that Nestle were, um, you know, selling uh, baby formula to third world countries, and you know, babies were getting sick and so I, went, I got on my high horse and s- said that to dad like you know he works for a, a company that's you know has no morals basically and he's like shut up mate you know that that, that company is as as uh, you know fed you for the last 18 years or whatever 15 years <laughs> don't tell me how to live so I can imagine that that would have been annoying for him so yeah but I mean look as as um I got older and I appreciated, you know, the, the struggle that my parents had. And I think, I think many uh, children as they get older appreciate the pressures that their uh, parents mm. were under because you get under the same pressures yourself. So, and you realize that, you know, no one's perfect. And, uh, you know, I think you, you forgive uh, things that might have happened, um, you know, as you get older, which is good. Well, that's it. I think someone once said to me, that you're just doing the best that you can. And I suppose in any situation growing up, your parents only know what they know at the time. So even though you can grow up as an adult saying, I wish they did this and did that, but we're all just doing the best that we can. Yeah, absolutely. And and my dad used to put pressure on me and call me lazy and I was. So, you know, and he and I knew he wanted me to he wanted me to, to do as well as I could. And he was very wise in many ways, actually. So um yeah, and I and I appreciate that more as I get older. So yeah. So yeah, that's. I mean, I what I what, one thing though with my children, I just want them to have that sense of fun and and not lose that and not take life too seriously. And that's really, I want to be able to laugh with my children, all, you know, all the time. And 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 I think that's happening, which I'm I'm really happy about. Yeah, well, they're pretty lucky, aren't they? They've got the perfect dad for that. How were the school years for you? I was um, a good student, so I was you know a smart kid. Um, and yeah, it was probably, I didn't study as hard as I could have. There was times where, you know, that I was called in, my mum was called in with me to, uh, for the, you know, for students, teachers to go, this kid could actually do well if he put his mind to it. So, you know, the teachers saw my potential and, mm. um, look, I ended up, uh, you know, getting the best marks in my, uh, my year level. But as I've said and many times, it was the worst year in the school's history. So I was the best of a bad lot at the Christian Brothers College. I was disappointed with my results because uh, at the time it was like 1988 and LA Law was a TV show that was on um, involving glamorous lawyers who all who all had, uh, you know, um, great lives and I was watching that TV show and thought I want to be a lawyer so I could be one of those guys and um, and I didn't get enough marks to get into law that year. And so when I found out I got the best marks for the year level and I still couldn't get into law, I thought, well... <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, I didn't know how to feel, to be honest, so it was a bad year. Once you finished school, you then moved to Melbourne, but you did an IT course for six weeks. 
Yeah, I did. Yeah, nine eighty nine. It was. I it was uh, my cutoff. The score I got the, the the course that was you know right on the cutoff for me was IT and information technology. Back in nine eighty nine was a new course. I mean, the internet really started about nineteen ninety. So um, yeah, I was there. I got a scholarship to do it, so I was getting paid to be there, and that was part of my rebelliousness. Like, I don't want my parents to have to pay for me to go to university, so I'll do this scholarship. And uh, yeah, so and it was computer coding and stuff, but I just couldn't be bothered. I had no interest in it. And you know what? I was homesick too. I mean, Melbourne, big city. I grew up in a small town, a world town of 25,000 people. And uh, yeah, so I, I could not handle the big city, didn't have the confidence to get to know people, was shy. And uh, yeah, I ended up uh, quitting after six. I quit just before I had to pay hex. It was, a, I think, if you, <laughs> was it six or eight weeks? If you went past that time, then you had to pay that semester's hex. And I didn't want to pay it, so so I quit and went home. So and worked in an abattoir actually well, for the year. Yeah, oh, an abattoir is uh, there. There, uh, oh god, that's a that's a harsh place to work. I tell you, an abattoir. What so, were you uh, doing there? I wasn't. Uh, I didn't want to be there full t- for t- long term, so I never learned how to use the knives. So that, I used to run the sheep up the race um, to when they, you know, I used to basically push them towards uh, their fate, so to speak. So, and I, yeah, so, and I used to talk to the sheep. I used to be very gentle with the sheep and people would look at me like I was insane. But, uh, you know, I, I'd like to think those sheep had a, had a, had some nice moments just before they had their throats slit, basically. Do you think that had any long-term effects? Oh, look, it, maybe it, it made me uh, want to make something else in my life, possibly. I haven't really thought about it. Um... It was, uh, I mean, I don't eat meat now, so yeah. maybe, maybe it had something to do with that. Yeah. So, I mean, there, I mean, there remains to an end in abattoir. So, and, you know, I do sometimes uh, when people bang on about either, you know, every couple of years, four corners will do an expose on a, and on an Indonesian abattoir and like, Oh no, how could they do that to those animals? And that's an abattoir, whether it's in Indonesia or in Australia. Mm. I mean, they're, they're not fun places. And, you know, the animals uh, suffer. They do. That's, you know, and that's, they do, they suffer because uh, we want to eat them. So, you know, so, and that's what people should know when they eat meat, that, you know, they're, they're part of that. But, um, you know, that also annoys people in my hometown who make a living out of it as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got into drinking yourself. I was drinking from about 15 or 14 yeah. or 15 and I used to think it made me look cool. I was insecure and, you know, and yeah, I always drank too much and always got too drunk. And, um, look, I reckon it's in the genes. I, I think it's, I think it gets passed you on through your DNA. Watching yeah. your dad do that as well. You know, I, I know yeah. as much as you didn't like that, that was what you grew up seeing. Well, maybe, yeah. Or is it just literally, is it, is it genetic? I don't know. I think I think sometimes it just gets passed on, as I said, through the genes. I don't know. I'm no expert. But, yeah, I was a bad – I was always getting too drunk. I was never aggressive, but I was always hopeless and I would, you know, black out all the time and, you know, end up in the police cells. Not that often, but often enough that – it was concerning and, uh, yeah, so I remember once I was, uh, I saw a, I was, you know, I walked, I was working at the local, uh, Warnable show and probably at the age of 18, I was, I was selling, I just got this, I was selling a Bart Simpson, uh, dolls at the show, right? And I, I, I got into it. It was, I was, the people walking past and I was starting, maybe my showbiz, uh, flair was starting to come out and I was starting to really spruik it. I mean, who wants to buy these Bart Simpson dolls? 
And um, God, The Simpsons been around a long time, hasn't yes. it? Anyway, um, and this woman said to me, young woman said, I, I can't believe you can speak. I said, what are you talking about? She said, I see you out every single weekend and you never are able to speak. I said, what do you mean? She said, you just can't speak. You're that drunk that you can't speak. I said, really? Do I get that drunk every weekend? I didn't even realise. So anyway. Well, well, that's that's a wake up call if you've ever if you've ever needed one. But obviously, the because you used to binge drink quite a bit, and that and you used to smoke a bit as well. Yeah, I mean, I didn't discover marijuana until I was eighteen. So, yeah. but that was like discovering you know Santa Claus for the first time. That was I. Well, initially, that is uh, something that's was was wonderful. But then the paranoia crept in pretty quickly for me. Maybe a year in, I was like. Oh, it was, yeah. So I, I, I went through a period of quitting marijuana. I quit marijuana, cigarettes and alcohol, I think all within three months. But when I was 21, just before I turned 22. And, uh, yeah, so I just went, I just went bang, bang, bang. And then there I was completely sober. Um, and yeah, I started to feel better, you know, like mentally I started to get some control back. And yeah, so here I am now. I'm 49 and uh, haven't touched either three, either three in the last what 27 years. But what I mean, 21 is so young. That's when a lot of people start to get into that stuff. Yeah. But you were quitting everything. What What was that pinnacle moment in all of those different kind of devices that felt, you were having I've, that made you stop? I felt depressed. I was. I just felt bad. I felt sad, and I. I, I was not. I didn't feel in control of my mind, honestly. It was like I, I, I felt I did feel like I'd given control over to these other things, and um, and I wanted to get. The, I, I mean, it sounds like an AA meeting now, but I wanted to get the power back, mm. and um, you know, and once I did stop those things, I, I did get the power back. I mean, the highs weren't as high, obviously, but the lows were nowhere near as low, and um. You know, I started to feel good about myself and, yeah, so because I was pretty low when I was, you know, by the end of that time, I'd, I'd quit university. I actually went back after the work in the abattoir and, and, and did a business degree in at the Deakin University in Warrnambool and I was like, I got 18 months through that and then I was I was so stoned all the time and that I just failed everything and quit that as well. So there I was not working at all, not studying at all. Just on the doll, basically, and just, just stoned every day, and I felt terrible. And um, so that's that's when I turned it around. Basically, I said, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And then your life completely shifted. You moved to Perth. I was doing like labouring jobs. I was doing anything to make some money. I was still on the doll at the time, but I would just cash in hand jobs. And uh, and but I did. I did, I went over there with the thought of doing stand up comedy. I mm. actually went as I was failing my last uh, business degree exam. Like I knew I was going to get zero on the test. I'm, I'm, I distinctly remember thinking, you know what, I want to be a comedian anyway. And so, and that 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 memory stays with me to this day. That there I am, failing university, thinking I want to be a comedian. No one, I'd never told anyone else I wanted to be a comedian, but I I thought I did. And yeah, so when I went to Perth a few months later, I um I started doing stand up comedy in Perth. Obviously, wanting to be a comedian, you must have been making people laugh the whole time. Not all the time, but I was. <laughs> if I if I could get on stage, like you know, if I won a trophy at, at footy or something, and I'd get on stage and there, I'm accepting my trophy or whatever. Um, I was able to make the audience laugh. Mm. I could, I just for whatever reason, get me in front of a, a group of people and I could make them laugh. I wasn't the life of the party off stage, really, unless I was drunk. But on stage, I was, and uh, yeah. So when you know, if I did a speech 
teaching like I remember doing a religious education speech one day in year 10 and I hadn't prepared the speech but I just started improing about uh, a woman who might be a saint one day I'll never forget her name Sally Trench is her name she I think she looked after the homeless people in England back in the 60s or something and um I was able to make this class full of boys lose their minds with laughter. And the Christian brother who was in charge of the class hated me so much for it that he failed me in that, in that subject. It was year 11 RE and it's the only subject I failed in my secondary school life. But that was, that was that one speech in year 11 where I made that whole class laugh and the class had, they were the ones they were, they would score every speech and I got perfect tens from the class, even though he still failed me for the subject. That was the moment. I reckon that lit the fire under my comedy career. I thought, you know what, this is a this is intoxicating. So yeah. And you know what, I would put money on that. Not one person in that class has not forgotten that speech either. Like I, yeah. I would say that was a pinnacle moment for you and for them. I'm in the WhatsApp group with some of those guys still to this day, and um, yes, we were talking about the other day. In fact, so what was your first stand-up gig? How was that like? That was in Perth. Um, you know, the only times I'd been on stage to be funny was probably a few, you know, a few classes at, during school, but nothing official. I'd done a couple of mates' 21st speeches and I'd torn, torn up the room there as well. So, but doing stand-up comedy in a room, which is a stand-up comedy room where that is so much pressure. There I was in Perth. I'd, I'd failed university. I was like, I'd, I'd put all my chips on this uh, crazy comedy dream. And the first night I walked on stage, I was so nervous and I had not prepared jokes and uh, certainly not as not well enough. And I got absolutely no laughs. And I was, it was like I was telling those people that I was a loser. It was like, it was, it was, it was humiliating and the room didn't have, there was no backstage. So you had to walk through the room when she'd finished on stage and, oh God, it was a long walk. There was probably only 60 people there, but it was the, that was the worst moment of my life. It was so bad. And what made you want to get up again and, and start doing it? Yeah. Well, you know what? I actually thought, and, and I was humiliated and, you know, I was living with it. I was in Perth living with another guy from Warrnambool at the time, Rat, Rat Day, good mate of mine to this day. And I got back to the, to the little flat that we were arranging and, and he said, how did you go? And I said, not very good. And he said, you know why? And I said, oh, not really. And he looked at me and said, because you're not funny. <laughs> now, me and Rat are still good mates, but that was a brutal assessment of um, what I was doing. But, uh, you know, and I was so humiliated, but I thought if I don't go the next week and try to do it again, I will never do it ever. So I just... I summoned up the courage and went back to that same comedy venue a week later and got back on stage and I didn't like, I didn't get many laughs, but I kept my, I kept my composure, something I hadn't done the first week. And the second week, what I talked about was the fact that I'd been so unfunny the first week. And that's when I probably realized that in, in your failure is, is the seeds of your success. Because when you can see your failure as funny, mm. well, then you can't be defeated. So yeah, it was, um, it was, uh, fine. But then I still didn't do it again for six months or maybe three months. I can't remember how long because I was so, it was, the, the, my mind was so addled by those two experiences. But maybe it was three months later, I saw an ad in the local West Australian newspaper that said new comics required. And I thought, Oh God, I'm going to have another go. 
and I rang the number and it was, I didn't know at the time, but it was the same venue looking for new comics. Wow. And the guy, the guy who answered the phone said, I saw, I remember you from when you tried it before. You weren't that bad. You should have another go. So he said that to me and I said, yeah, right. All right. I wasn't that bad. And I went back, booked in, got back on stage and it was the third gig I ever did. As I was walking on stage, something just something just occurred to me, you're a winner for just doing this. You're already a winner. And it was that thought just relaxed me as I walked on stage. And the laughs I got in that third ever gig, I'm probably only up there for five minutes, but the laughs I got s- stay with me to this day. I'm still trying to chase those laughs. It was the high. It was I've never had a high like it before or really? since. So it was that moment where the whole room is laughing and that I realized, yes. You're right. This is what you're meant to do. And it was like, it was the joy of that was just, I'm getting tingles just thinking about it now. It was just the joy of, yes, this is, this is it. You're not a deluded loser who's going to be on the dole forever. You know, this is where you're meant to be. And, uh, uh, it was so powerful. Isn't that amazing that to this day that you still can remember that and you still remember the feeling that you felt at that time because feelings are so powerful. They're more powerful than words. Yeah, it was. I, I I floated off that stage, and I was just you know again. It was like fifty people in a room. Didn't get paid. It was like five minutes. I'm um, you know, but I was just on such a high that um, I knew. And I, since that day, so that was I. You know, apart from you know what, since that day, I've been doing stand up comedy every single week for the last. What is that? That's nineteen ninety. It was ninety three, I reckon. So it's the last twenty six years or twenty seven years. And something else that you did which I think is just so unbelievable, is you started writing affirmations. You used to write affirmations to yourself in your diary and you wrote things like, I'm never going to stop having a go, have the right attitude, live each moment as it comes, be free from guilt, and the most important one, which is laugh. What made you even think to write those? You know, I, I, I actually started, uh, probably back in the time where I was depressed and still probably smoking marijuana and drinking too much. I discovered, you know, self-help books, to be honest. Mm. There was a guy actually called, uh, he's still, I probably still writes books. I don't know. Wayne Dyer. Dr. Oh, Wayne Dyer. I love Dyer. him. Oh, he's, really? He actually passed away a few years ago. But did he, he? Yeah. He is like one of the biggest spiritual teachers that I, has affected my life. Yeah, well, there you go. I didn't. I feel bad that he's passed away, and I should. I obviously lost touch with what he did, but his his some of his early books really helped mm. me so much. I mean, you know, and I remember being, you know, I remember being at home back in Warnable on the dial, and you know, still, you know, still not achieving anything, and reading his books. And I think I remember people, maybe even my. Parents just going, what are you reading? I said, this guy, uh, this guy really is, he speaks to me. So yeah, it's funny that you, you are also uh, affected by him. He, I think, is one of the absolute kings of the like, you know, metaphysical kind of spiritual world. And I, his old books, which I assume are the ones that you read that I've You'll read. You'll see it recently. when you believe it. Yeah, yeah. They've uh, absolutely touched me. I mean, those learnings now are so useful for today. It's nothing has changed. You know, he's a, he's so unbelievably powerful. How did you even get onto his stuff? I don't know. I was probably, you know, what I was probably just wandering around again, unemployed, and and walked into a bookshop and and just saw a book. You know, I I can't remember how I got onto it, but I definitely, it definitely, it it resonated with me. And it's just, you know, it's it's trying to tell 
my children as well that you you are the but you produce your thoughts. Mm. No one else produces them. They're your thoughts, and and you are you're churning them out, and and it's your decision. You're making the decision. We're all making our, our decisions on on our attitude, and we're making decisions on our, on how we feel. You know. So and it's yeah, it's it, it came from guys like yeah. that yeah, who um yeah really. He's got this amazing quote. I don't know if you've heard it before, and it's it's I think about it every day, and especially when I get into a situation that you know maybe is not one that I really want to. Been. He says, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I, that, that sort of um, attitude is, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, again, I read a number of his books, but uh, what I used to say to myself all the time, actually, and I can't remember whether I read this or I made this up, is uh, when you're happy, happy things happen. Mm. You know? So, no, so decide, decide to be happy first, and then things around you will happen, you know. They will happen. Happy things will happen, but they also you, you add that add to that because it doesn't matter whether they don't or not because you're happy. Well, so, that's it exactly. So it doesn't matter what happens; you're already happy. So you, yeah, you actually decide to be happy. And for me, that was part of the reason to give up alcohol and and drugs is that if I'm going to be happy, I'm going to make I'm going to make myself happy. Nothing else has to make me happy. I make myself happy. Now, drugs, alcohol, nothing. They don't. Don't give other things the power to to make your mood good. You you decide yourself that your mood's going to be good. So, mm. well, that's it. And you look at your life since you finished that; it's absolutely flourished. You then went on to do something which kind of changed things forever. You did an appearance on Hey Hey It's Saturday. How yes. was that, and how did that affect your career moving forward? Oh, that, again, probably the most nervous I've ever been, apart from the first stand-up comedy gigs. Actually, no, more nervous than that was, yeah, going on Hey Hey at Saturday back in about 97. So a gro- a sh- it's a TV show that I grew up watching, you know, in a small country town. Well, not that small, but, you know, and it was only, it was every Saturday night, everyone would sit down and, you know, before you even, be, after you turn 18, you'd still turn it on at 6.30 and watch that before you went out, you know, to get drunk basically. So so to walk onto that stage, I tried to, they, they had a segment called um, Red Faces back in the day mm. where am- amateurs would go on the show and I'd already been doing stand-up comedy and I moved to Melbourne after being in Perth for about almost two years and moved to Melbourne to further my stand-up comedy career. And I, I auditioned for Red Faces twice, actually, trying to, you know, as an amateur, just get on and, and be funny. And, and the guy rejected me twice. He just would not. <laughs> remember the second time, he just he didn't even look up from his uh, clipboard. And I'm doing a routine in front of no and one guy, and he's not even looking at me. <laughs> I actually said to him, I said to him, mate, can you just look at me? You know, was, I, and the security what guard did he walked say? me out. He said, yeah, yeah, whatever. And the security guard walked me out. So I thought that th- I think they thought I was going to get aggressive, <laughs> like physically aggressive with him. <laughs> so I didn't, I couldn't get on the red faces, the amateur, you know, segment, but I was able to get on as a stand up comedian, like as a professional, not, not long afterwards. Um, I remember walking past the same guy, Jack's his name, Jack someone, oh, is it Jack Strom or something? Anyway, we've since made up about what happened back then, but, um, and I was trying to get him to look at me, trying to get him to remember me. Yeah, I'm the guy you rejected. I'm the guy you got the security guard to walk out of the building. Here I am. But, um, he didn't even look up again, so he couldn't even remember. But anyway. <laughs> But I was so nervous, but it went well, went really well. And the gig, the, 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 what the, the routine I did was about being on the dole, which again was part of 
my attitude, bad things happen to you, you turn them into jokes and, and you become a winner. And, you know, everyone who's on the dog gets embarrassed. There'll be a lot of people right now, whenever I can in on radio or whatever, I say, don't be embarrassed about being on the dole. I was on the dole for seven years, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it can be part of life. So, but yeah, so, but it's still embarrassing. If you're at a party and, and someone says, what do you do? You don't want to say you're unemployed. So it was embarrassing. Yes. Yeah, of um, course. yeah, so, but I did, I developed a routine about being on the dole and it was funny as, and people used to love it. And I did it on, I did it on Hayat Saturday and it, it, it went really well. And, uh, you know, that was another real high for me. So yeah, that was the, the first time on national TV and it was, it was a real win for me. And, uh, yeah. And you wrote something that was so beautiful in your diary, which I loved. You say, I don't tell jokes, I tell stories. Take us yeah. through that. Well, I mean, what I want to do is like use my own life and um, see the funny in that, you know. Mm. So that's – and people, would, you know, over the years I'd say, well, are you going to run out of material? And I'm like, no, I won't because life will always be funny and it always has been, you know. No matter where I'm at in life, it's funny, you know. Whether you're on the dial without a girlfriend or, you know, you, you're talking about, you know, you, obviously I've done really well, I've got a beautiful family. There's still – there's jokes everywhere. So um, – yeah, it's just about being able to see the funny. You know, it's there. You just have to see it, and then yeah. And the, the, the more honest you can be in your material, I think the the more people, it more it resonates with people. So, what you want people to say when they come and see me or they hear me on the radio is that I can relate to that. You know, yes. I, I can tell there's an honesty in, in what you're doing, and and that's what you want. That's what I want, and I'm happy when people uh, realise that. And in 2001, you began doing your fabulous breakfast radio with Kate Langbrook. And your life just changed dramatically from there. How was yeah. that run? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, yeah, I got it from, uh, yeah, the, the fame started to kick in from there, I suppose. I mean, you know, fame in, in Australia mm. at least. Um, so, um, yeah, it was, I always enjoyed radio as well. And it's, for me, it's an extension of stand-up comedy where, where I still, to this day, just think that I get on the radio and, and talk about my life and um, people uh, relate and laugh and, you know, and I get paid for it. And I've been doing it for a long time. And, uh, yeah, but it was it was every day. The discipline of every day, of, of getting up every day, being able to have to do radio, was um, it took a little while to get used to because when you're just doing stand-up comedy, you are – you know, you're sleeping in a lot. and <laughs> But I did, I loved it straight away and it connected with a lot of people straight away and, um, you know, it's been going for a long time now. You mentioned before, like, obviously that was, you know, you're into then becoming a celebrity in the entertainment industry and then there are a lot of egos in the entertainment industry which comes with that, you know, notoriety. How do you manage yours? Yeah, the, the, the only thing that, you know, the ego is, my own ego is what's the only thing that's caused me pain really over my whole career. And it's like, again, it's just, it's it's ridiculous where, I remember at one stage I went through thinking about, oh God, you know, uh, I'm not as popular as I used to be or, you know, I sold more tickets last year or, you know, that sort of stuff. And it's, 
it's ridiculous. Honestly, we've all got to live in the moment, no matter what we're doing. You've got living in the moment is the only way to go. It's you, you cannot hang on to the past, or like I'd get a bad review and then I'd, I'd stress over that that someone didn't think I was funny. Oh, look, I still do it to a degree, but I think I'm a lot better than I used to be of just letting it go and realizing that it's. It is all temporary. It's, you know, it's none of us are going to be remembered in a hundred years or maybe, but certainly not in 200, you know, or maybe not in a year. I mean, it's, it's stressing over your place in society or your pecking order in a, some sort of entertainment ladder is just ridiculous and, and gets you absolutely nowhere. So over the years, I've, I've certainly got better at it. Absolutely. And I've, one thing is never hold a grudge. Mm. If you're holding a grudge against someone, you're not living in the present. You can't hold a grudge and live in the present. So hopefully I've uh, realized just to let all past <laughs> Percep- my perception of someone slighting me or wronging me. I just I've let it go. Thank God. Well, it's liberating yourself when you do that as well. Even more so than you know, letting the other person off the hook. It's about you know not living with that internal yeah. you know uh, anger. Don't let someone else live inside your head. Is you know, it's, it's, I mean, I didn't coin that phrase, but that's you know, it's it's just ridiculous. You know, I'd, I'd stress about some review I got, you know, in the Adelaide Advertiser or something. Some someone, you know, some real estate, uh, you know, a person who's just been sh- shipped in to do a review turns up to your comedy show and gives you like a two star review or a one star review, and I get angry because they didn't mention that everyone was laughing. So. <laughs> the comedy is an industry where it is pretty full on like that. And, you know, to put yourself in front of people and then you're going on if they're laughing or, or not, it's hard to not care what they think. How do you manage that? Oh, it's, but when you don't care what people think is when you go best, you know, mm. like when I'm on stage and, you know, I still go through periods of this, but I'm, I'm much better than I used to be. When I used to be more erratic, I think over the years you hopefully get more consistent as to your attitude. But when I'm on stage and I'm in a good mood, I can look into the audience and see someone looking absolutely miserable, like they're having the worst time of their lives, like someone's dragged them, you know, at gunpoint to your show and they absolutely hate me. And I'd look in their face and see that and just laugh. Like mm. that makes me laugh. It's someone hating me. It just makes me laugh. That's when I know I'm having a good gig because I'm like, it is so, what I'm doing here is so silly and life is so silly that someone who hates me and I can see it through their eyes is making me laugh. So that's, that's the attitude I want when I'm on stage, you know, but other times when I'm insecure, I'll, I'll look at a room full of people and, you know, 98% of them are laughing and I'll look at that one person yawning and I'll feel terrible because they're, and it's like they know that I'm not funny, you know. So, but my attitude to that person, not, and in every audience there's going to be people not laughing. My attitude to seeing that person not laughing is, is for me, whether I'm, I'm in the right place or not. If I can look at them not laughing, and be amused by that, well, then I'm bulletproof. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm going to think about that in my everyday life. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, not long ago, uh, your dad actually passed away. And this is, so, this is a beautiful story. You, on your TV show, you were talking about how like a lot of people's parents, dads in particular, they have never said a lot that they love them. And you mentioned that about your dad. And then later that evening, someone messaged you on Instagram 
and they it was a beautiful nurse that looked after your dad, Des, and she wrote this message to you. She wrote, Hi, Dave. After watching the show, I nursed your dad at Mercy, and he loved his family so much. He would often speak of you as kids. You definitely have his humour. He was a real gentleman who was so proud of his kids. Yeah, it was beautiful. I remember at the time it was just see, yeah, I felt I'm just getting a bit, <laughs> a bit tingly now just hearing that back. So, yeah, that was a lovely, uh, a lovely message to get from from a nurse who did uh, deal, you know, nurse my dad as he as he moved to the next world. And yeah, to her to say that yeah, he was uh, a gentleman and that he was uh, proud of his children uh, was uh, it was lovely. And uh, yeah, it made me really emotional. And um, yeah, that was it was a beautiful moment. It's funny, isn't it? Because like it is quite common that parents don't sometimes, you know, especially back in that era, say that they love their kids, even though with their full heart, they would have, you know, given their life to their children, yet they hold it inside. How now as a parent has that made you be with your children, knowing that your dad never really said that to you? Yeah, look, I mean... Yeah, I, look, I hopefully am more expressive than my uh, dad was or, you know, than my – even my mum has trouble saying I love you. It's like a weird thing we still have trouble saying. It's not – I mean, obviously she does and she's been so good to me, but those words are hard mm. to say. It's uh, it's like we get embarrassed. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, it is um, – I think that – Hopefully I will, yeah, me and my children will have a, a closer relationship and, um, you know, that we'll not have those, the acrimony that uh, can happen between, um, you know, a father and son or, you know, so, um, I don't know how I'll do that, but I just, uh, just keep, uh, remembering that, you know, we've got to keep talking basically. So even now, I mean, you've got to just speak to your family more often, you know what I mean? Like I'm trying to ring mum more often than I I have in the past. It's just like everyone's busy and then all of a sudden the the week or the the month goes past and you haven't spoken to your own mother. It's just crazy. Got to do it more often. Were you able to tell your dad that you loved him before he died? Yeah, I was there on the night he died, which was, um, yeah, I was – Able to, I mean, it was that was luck more than anything for me. You know, at the time I was doing the project, so I was like full time on the TV show, the project, and doing breakfast radio still. Um, so yeah, I was very busy at the time, and I, you know, I still am. But yeah, I, I was I was down in Warrnambool on the night that he passed. So that was um, it was it was I was I was lucky basically to be to be there at the end. Um, yeah, he was he got dementia. Towards the end, it was mm. quick. In the end, I mean, it's it's a tough thing to say, but yeah, it's when you see someone with dementia, it's like, oh, they're hard places to visit, mm. you know, those sort of nursing homes. And it's, um, yeah, Dad didn't hang around for long, but um, look, he was a very wise man in many ways, and you know, and he was always about family, and you know, and you you forget that. Um, and he was not someone who was ever really worried about money at all, but he was just, you know, as long as you've got enough to live. Um, yeah, so he was a, he was a very smart man, uh, no doubt. And he was, uh, uh, he was, yeah, someone connected to just the simple things in life. So, you know, there was, there was much wisdom to be gained from my father and, um, mm. And you are probably one of the hardest workers in the Australian entertainment industry and 
have been for years and everything you have in your life, you have because you've been able to achieve all these amazing things. Where did you get that work ethic from? Uh, look, I again, that was it would surprise people because I wasn't, you know, I was. I remember I did one day of a paper round as a, like a fourteen year old and just thought I don't want to get up early and just quit after one day. <laughs> so it's like, so I was not someone, you know. I was like, I didn't want to do chores around the backyard, even though there was money in it for me. And so I was lazy in many ways. Um, but I think it's the love of comedy. I've just mm. got to. I found something I loved, you know, and it's and it, I suppose possibly stopping, you know, alcohol and drugs and stuff. So the adrenaline rush I get from comedy is that's my, that's my, that's my jam. That's my thrill. And I just bloody love it, you know, and, and, and I don't care what it is. I'll, I'll turn up to this day. I'll turn up to some of the dodgiest gigs and people go, why, why are you here? I'm like, I just love it. I love it. And obviously financially, I don't need to be there at all. <laughs> I don't need to, depending on how the stock market goes over the next few months, I possibly don't have to work again. But, um, you know, I, just, I absolutely love it and I'll still do it for free. It's the thrill of uh, and the joy of, of getting a laugh is something that I, um, I'll, I'll love for the, I'll be in a nursing home one day, you know, trying to organize gigs in the, in the rec room. There's no doubt. <laughs> I hope we're in the same nursing home. <laughs> when you reflect back at your life and all the things that you've done and you've achieved, what are you most proud of? Oh, look, I, as, a, as a comedian, I was so proud when I was – I still remember the first time I got paid to, to make people laugh. That was just amazing. I mean, I've, I've been – you know, it might have been 50 bucks or 100 bucks or something. I was like, I've got this money for making people laugh. It was just that – was that was a remarkable to me. And when I was able to make a living out of it, you know, get finally get off the doll, that was another achievement for me. It's like I'm able to, you know, make a proper living – as someone who, you know, entertains people. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, and from that, there's, you know, there's been many highs in my uh, comedy life and, you know, but it's hard to rank them and I don't really even, you don't really reflect on it anymore. It's just like, it's not worth it. I remember once, you know, I did the Montreal Comedy Festival once and um, got a standing ovation and it was like, oh, my God, here I am in Montreal, you know, Look, I'm not a name in any other part of the world. I know that, but you know, here I was. I was with. It was called All Stars Comedians, and there was other really well-known North American comedians on the bill, and and uh, no one knew me. But I did my spot. You know, coming off nothing. Not there was no history for them people to think I was funny, and they they laughed so much they gave me a standing ovation at the end of it, and it was like that was a real high for wow. me. But um, you know what? I went back there. I think the next year, and all I could think about was the standing ovation I got last time. And then I was like, as I'm doing the gig again at the Montreal, there's three thousand people there, and I'm doing, you know, I'm doing well. But in my head, I'm thinking they're not going to stand. This isn't as good as last time, and they're not going to stand. And they didn't stand. And I'm like, I walked off stage really unhappy. You know why? Because I wasn't living in the moment. Yes. I was, I was trying to hold on to a past glory. It was just ridiculous and and again a lesson in doesn't matter what's happened in the past just just enjoy the moment you're in well so. that's it it's so in unbelievably important mm-hmm. what's your greatest hope for society today well i i always my my uh, my only hope is that people don't take themselves too seriously. I just, all I want my children to do and I want, all I want to do is open my eyes and be amazed uh, that I'm alive. Be amazed that 
that, that we're on this planet. You know, we've all, most, almost all of us take for granted the fact that we can breathe or we can see or we can touch or we can think. It's just being alive is an incredible mystery that we all should be in awe of pretty much the whole time. So, yeah, that's what I would want, that more people can just be just blown away by the fact that they're, that they're actually alive. What's the lesson that took you the longest to learn? Um, again, I reckon probably that is that of just, and I'm still learning it, it's just stay in the moment, you know, stay in the moment. And, like, if I, again, I do radio surveys, I get weekly TV ratings and, you know, and you're sad because you're looking at the people who aren't watching you rather than the people who are watching you, you know. I just, and I always say to myself, at any moment, life could be over. You don't know when, you know, a tree's going to fall on you or you're going to, whatever. We don't know when. Because it's going to happen one day. We don't know when. I don't want that last moment to be when I'm miserable because my radio ratings weren't good enough or my TV ratings weren't good enough. I didn't sell enough tickets that day, you know, stand-up show. I want my last moment to be me looking around going, my God, being alive is incredible. Do you pray at all? I don't. No, I don't. I mean, I grew up a Catholic. I don't, like, I'm not a, no, I don't. But I, for me, it's that, the silence, I think, it was trying to find the silence. Mm. In the silence is the, um, that's where the, uh, whatever it is, I don't know what it is, but that's where the, the next level, yeah, yeah, the next level is in, is in that silence where you just, wow, the, the, the awe and the, uh, the majesty of, of, of life itself is in that silence. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know what's next. I, I know there's something next. So I know this is not it, but mm. I don't know what it is, but yeah, it's, but again, the, the 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 miracle is in every moment. Every moment is an absolute miracle. What is a life of greatness to you? It's just it's looking out at the ocean and and realizing the wonder of of life. It's looking up at the stars and and just and realizing how amazing it is to be on this planet. I think really that's the people who I'm most in awe of are the people who most often do that, who just see the awe in, in every moment. They're, they're the, the richest people. Dave Hughes, thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.